This is episode one of Advancing Health Systems in Low and Middle Income Countries. My name is Kirby Kreider, and I work on the HFG Project, and I'll be your host for this podcast. If you haven't listened to our very short first episode, episode zero, I'd suggest that you go back to that, especially if you're not that familiar with what health finance and governance is. Oh, and by the way, the HFG Project is the Health Finance and Governance Project. HFG is a six-year USAID-funded project that's working on strengthening health systems in low- and middle-income countries around the world. For this first episode, we're going to divide the podcast up into three sections, and we're going to focus on three questions in each of those sections. The first question will be, what is it? Second, we'll look at why does it matter and why does it matter now? And finally, for the third question, we'll talk about some lessons learned from the HFG project, which is coming to an end, and we'll think about how some of those lessons learned might apply to other sectors in international development, even outside of global public health specifically. Let's get started with that first question. What is domestic resource mobilization? Domestic resource mobilization is is kind of a fancy way of saying that the government needs to make money available to fund its priorities. You're generating funding from domestic sources, mainly general tax revenue that is sufficient to meet your objectives for your health system, but there are limits to, to what a given country can fund, but you're going to at least set some priorities and make the resources available from your your domestic sources to meet those priorities. That voice was Dr. Cheryl Cashin. She's a senior project director and health economist working for Results for Development, a partner on the HFG project. I think she did a great job of providing a simple definition of DRM, but you might be asking yourself, how are health services paid for generally? And what are the domestic resources that she's talking about? Dr. Carlos Avila is a senior health economist on the HFG project, and he describes two of these sources, one of which is something we'd like to limit or even avoid when we work on DRM. Here he is. The the typical domestic source of money, there are two majors, from general taxes and also from out-of-pocket, from from households. Uh, uh, Out-of-pocket, really, in some countries, um, some households are pushed into poverty. So if you have a tax system that is progressive, meaning those who earn higher uh, amounts of money pay a little bit more of taxes. Dr. Vila talked about two sources of money for health services in a country. One is out-of-pocket spending, where people pay for health services, for example, when they go to a clinic. And the other is government spending. And that spending might come from taxation, or it might come from changes to budgets, for example. So when we think of DRM generally, the goal is to limit the out-of-pocket spending. Because as Dr. Vila said, many families are pushed into poverty from this kind of spending. Even in the US, medical debt from healthcare costs is actually the number one cause of bankruptcy. And you can imagine it can be much worse in low and middle income countries where some people may not have credit cards or bank accounts, and they have to sell everything, even things that are productive assets or things that they use to make a living in order to pay for the healthcare needs of a family member. And that could even just be for malaria treatment or delivering a baby, these kind of like basic health services. What we're talking about here is equity, fairness and justice in the way that people are treated. And that's a key part of DRM. And it will come up in a couple different places later in the episode. So how can we increase domestic resources for healthcare? One way is to have higher tax rates on a population. You could also have higher tax revenues because maybe a country is experiencing economic growth. You could also move money around inside of the government's budgets so that health spending gets a bigger piece of the pie. There's another way to make sure that there's more resources for health, and it's a concept called efficiency. 
Steve Musau is a public financial administration advisor on the HFG project, and he has an example and a clear explanation of this concept of efficiency. Here he is. We are working uh, with the Ministry of Health in Botswana to look at the efficiency with which the HIV and AIDS program is being implemented. The National AIDS Coordinating Agency that is doing some particular interventions and, you know, and activities within the program, while the same interventions, the same kinds of uh, activities and programs are being carried out by the Ministry of Health, really they could save quite a bit of, of money just by coordinating and just by bringing together these parallel programs. When people talk about domestic resource mobilization, they tend to focus more on you know, just how to raise more revenue, how to get more money uh, into the health sector. But one of the issues that tends to get uh, ignored is the fact that not only do we need more money, we also need to be able to get more out of what you already have. That's where the issue of uh, efficiency comes in. How well are we making use of the revenue that we have already to produce more services uh, to, the, uh, to the consumers, to have more impact without necessarily you know, spending more? I think with the help of these experts, we've identified the key elements of DRM. It's about finding money within a country to pay for health services through tax revenue and through budgeting. It's also about limiting the inequity of high out-of-pocket payments, which are especially tough on people who are poor, marginalized, or vulnerable. To that point, I heard from a number of these experts that if you focus your attention on these populations, you can improve the entire system for everyone, but that doesn't necessarily work in reverse. And finally, DRM involves looking at ways to improve the efficiency with which health services are delivered by looking for ways to avoid unnecessary duplication or by purchasing drugs and medical equipment in a more competitive way. All right, listeners, we got through the first question. Congratulations. I hope you have a better idea of what domestic resource mobilization is. For the second question, I'd like to ask, why does it matter and why does it matter now? And to answer that, I want to take us back to 2013 and listen to a really short clip from Voice of America News. Like other federal agencies, the U.S. Agency for International Development has to cut its budget as a result of sequestration. The 4% USAID must cut will reduce its foreign assistance. So the budget sequestration was a mandatory across-the-board cut for all agencies and departments in the U.S. government. And it might seem like old news, but I think it really illustrates how foreign assistance, as well as the countries that foreign assistance is going to, can't always rely on the big donors like they have in the past. Let's jump ahead to 2017. You're about to hear a short clip from Mick Mulvaney, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, talking about cuts to foreign aid. Now, we're absolutely reducing funding to the UN and to the various foreign aid programs, including those run by the UN and other agencies. That should come as a surprise to no one who watched the campaign. The president said specifically hundreds of times, you covered him, I'm going to spend less money on people overseas and more money on people back home. And that's exactly what we're doing with this budget. Yes, ma'am. So I know both of those examples were US centric, but it is a trend around the world. Let's hear from one more of our experts, Sharon Nakamovsky from the HFG Project. And she's going to talk about these reasons and also some other reasons why we're talking about this right now in this moment in time. 
So domestic resource mobilization, or DRM. Um, so why? I mean, the cost of healthcare. This is in the U.S. and Europe, as well as developing countries, uh, is is rising. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's you know technology advances, lots of new tempting. Uh, things to, that you could use if you wanted them. Also, just more people and who are living longer. Um, so there's a kind of growing burden of non-communicable diseases while we're still tackling some of the uh, infectious diseases like malaria and HIV are still just so important. And that has turn to become chronic. So that's part of it. And then donor appetite for continuing to increase or even maintain uh, support is is growing uncertain. Uh, so countries, especially middle-income countries, where traditionally they've had money that would come in and support health programs, if that disappears, it will really change the equation. Um, how do you see that money go and yet maintain uh, the improvements that they have, the, the kind of progress they've made over the last decades or, or more. And actually, they have, they've become even more ambitious. So, you know, you, the goal of universal health coverage, uh, which is kind of enshrined recently in the United Nation uh, Sustainable Development Goals, it's big, it's thinking big. Um, and how do you reach more people? How do you reduce inequity and bring and bring kind of the poor up? So all of these big dreams, rising costs, exiting donors, I'd say that kind of summarizes why domestic resource mobilization is such a kind of hot topic right now. I think Sharon did a nice job of summarizing why we're talking about this right now. So I won't add much more to what she said. But you may have heard her mention the Sustainable Development Goals. And a little later in the episode, you'll hear a really awesome rap song about the Sustainable Development Goals. One other thing she referenced was an increasing demand for services from people. And in my mind, this increasing demand is actually a really good thing. People have an expectation for and are asking for health services that will improve their lives. So on one side, demand is growing and the costs are rising. And on the other side, the plans from big donors like the United States are becoming increasingly more uncertain. I'd like to introduce you to Elaine Barua, also a health economist on the HFG Project, who will dig a little more into these reasons. Listen for her to talk about this increasing demand and increasing expectation for health services, among some other reasons. Here she is. As people demand more health care, and that health care gets more expensive to deliver, um, we have to balance that expectations or meet those expectations. In many of the countries that like HFG works in, many of the countries I work in, that expectation, if you call it, say, universal healthcare coverage or that objective, for example, um, access to a basic package of services. So children under five should get immunizations and treatment for infections. Women should have access to family planning methods. Um, malaria should be treated for everyone, particularly in endemic countries. So all of those things um, need to be paid for. And if you look at how much money it requires to meet all of those needs, in most of the countries we work in, and you look at what governments are spending, you'll see there's a huge discrepancy. Governments are not spending enough money to meet what we are more and more beginning to consider as the basic essential services that people should expect as a human right. And so because there is that gap, 
in those lower and middle income countries. We're trying DRM, domestic resource mobilization, is about filling that gap. So there's a demand for more and more health services in countries, and that creates greater expectations. But countries are still facing a big gap in being able to fund even basic health services for all the reasons you've just heard. And we're talking about DRM because it's a way to fill that gap. So before we close out this question, I want to share with you one more global reason why DRM is being talked about now. Here's Cheryl Cashin again. I think that this idea of domestic resource mobilization hasn't only come to the forefront because of the conversations around donor plans. But, you know, there's on the other side, there's this really unprecedented global commitment to universal health coverage. 17 sustainable development goals. Let's get to them because the more you know, look, in some corners of the world today, people are living on a dollar a day. Hey, that's not how it ought to be. So go one, eliminate poverty and go two, root out hunger across the globe. There's 800 million people hungry if you want to know. Number three is health and well-being and getting people the health care that they need in. Learning in school. I hope you enjoyed that little musical interlude to close out this question that was provided to us by UN Web TV, and the organization that made it was Flocabulary. You can find the full version on UN Web TV's YouTube channel. So we've made it through the first two questions. And for the third question, I want to focus on just a few key lessons learned. So what lessons can we take from the HFG project that could apply to other sectors within international development? Again, even outside of global health. And as you might imagine, it often comes down to people and it comes down to relationships. Dr. Carlos Avila, again, is going to talk to you about those. You really need to have a relationship with the government. You need to have conversations with the main stakeholders, the main, main players. Uh, individual conversations, you also need to... to bring all of them to the table to discuss the issues, making some things that are implicit, try to make those explicit. It's a very important process in, in understanding why these resources are needed. Talk to the main players and stakeholders. Sometimes when they realize, when they start looking at the data, they are the main uh, proponents of mobilizing resources. So it's that kind of work. We are talking about analytical work and also the process. It's a, it's a process. Providing the evidence is making the case. is uh, being very clear about communications. You need to have a message. And in terms of resource mobilization, always is very important that we are talking not only about more money, but better use of the resources. I think Dr. Avila in that clip described how to do communication and this relationship building well. It's about being strategic about how you reach out to stakeholders. It's tailoring the message, but also having a clear message to share with them. And it's about backing up all of the messages with data that's solid and convincing. And I like how he described that sometimes stakeholders will even take on the messages that you've given them and it'll be even more powerful because it's coming out of their mouths. Here's Elaine Barua again to add to this. Donors who have supported these countries historically have tended to focus their support on many of these same basic services. So immunization, family planning, um, treatment of malaria, those kinds of things. And what that what's happened is that those governments have sort of thought to themselves, okay, if a donor is addressing this, I'm going to build secondary hospitals or I'm going to build tertiary hospitals. 
which makes sense. It's rational. Why should we all be providing the same thing when we still have needs elsewhere? And that sort of exacerbated over the last 15 years because we've had this huge flow of resources to global health that have gone from donors, wealthy countries to low income countries for very specific things. So HIV, malaria, TB, and it will never go away because in every country you're going to have this large population of vulnerable people that need to be taken care of. And the only way to take care of them is for government to pay. There isn't any magic tree that is going to give us money to pay for care for the vulnerable. If we talk about universal health coverage and we say that's our goal as a country, basically it's implicit there. Governments have to spend money to ensure that the vulnerable receive care. So I want to pause here and just reiterate what Elena is saying because she's saying a lot. She describes how historically countries have relied on donor funds to address kind of the core, the basic health services, and they've been able to spend their resources that would go to those basic services elsewhere. So now things are changing. And unless the governments of these low and middle income countries fill in these gaps, the poor are going to be hit hard. Back to Elaine. There's no magic bullet. So there's no one option. It has to be a lot of options because what's politically in fashion now is out tomorrow. What's economically feasible now is out in a recession. And so you have to make your sort of DRM plan political proof, because there will be elections, and economic proof, because there will be ups and downs. And if you're reliant on something that moves a lot with ups and downs, that's that's a problem. We don't train. There's no, you know, those of us who did MPHs or PhDs, there wasn't really a class on political economy. And here's how you talk to people outside of health. If you don't engage, if you say politics is beyond us, then basically, you can only look for domestic resources in the budget that you have and you will never you won't get a larger budget because you have to do that engagement. And it is not just let's do some math on the back of the envelope, work out how much we need and where the gaps are. I think that's a key lesson from the HFG project. DRM is fundamentally political and it can't just be desk work and great analyses of problems. We have to be in the thick of it, and we have to be talking with ministries, with stakeholders, with people. And it's not even just how do we fill them, because there's a lot of information out there on how we fill them, right? So people have great ideas. We'll do like the airline tax, or we'll do uh, sin taxes on alcohol, or we'll do uh, social health insurance and deduct people's salaries. The options are known, but how do you do that and which options? We can't be doing assessments, 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 right? The assessment and the gap analysis part, like what do we need, what do we have, they're important, but they're really the tip of the iceberg. They're not the whole iceberg. That is the start of a much larger process. And that process is, to some extent, I've got to say, it's not sexy. It's not putting pills in people's mouths. It's like public financial management. It's not shiny and it's not going to make senators' eyes light up. But it's absolutely critical if we're going to get countries to be able to stand on their own two feet. The things that could make a huge difference, treatment for diarrhea, basic antibiotics for respiratory you know, tract infections that kill so many children, all of these things are cheap. We need to, to get governments to take over those so that they own them. We have to work out how we spend more and more effectively on health system strengthening, on enabling ministries of health to do this domestic resource mobilization themselves. 
So there's no magic bullet. There's no magic tree that's producing money. But as Elaine says, there are a lot of options. She makes the point that your DRM plan should look at all of these options and choose the right mix for the particular country and political context and make it political proof when possible. I'd like to bring back Steve Musau from earlier in the episode again, because I think he can elaborate on what Elaine just said about the political economy side of things, especially as it relates to efficiencies and identifying inefficiencies. It's not good enough to have uh, a, a good uh, money-saving idea. That, that, that doesn't always work. <laughs> things that we've seen in our work include being able to identify those areas where these inefficiencies are, exist. And then, you know, having identified those, uh, those inefficiencies, deciding what is doable. You may identify a particular, you know, inefficiency, but then in order to be able to, uh, to resolve it, it, it may require, you know, quite a lot of effort. It may require a lot of, uh, you know, buy-in by, by, by uh, key stakeholders. You know, there, there may be very many interests involved until you understand who is actually gaining, who is, who is actually driving uh, the, inef- the inefficiency. You, 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 you may actually not get very far. So there's all of that engagement that one needs to, to have with all the different uh, stakeholders within, uh, within the Ministry of Health. Okay, so political engagement, relationship building, communication, messages. What does all this look like in practice? Dr. Inyang Azabang is the health commissioner for Cross River State in Nigeria. In September 2016, that state passed a state health insurance scheme, uh, and they passed the bill with a unanimous vote. It even got a nickname, which I really like, Aida Care, named after the Cross River State governor, Professor Ben Aida. So as you'll hear, it was not easy to do this, but Dr. Azibong describes some of the key things that they did and key things that happened as they worked to pass the bill. It started by HFG, USID meeting us, telling us they've seen the little we're trying to do with limited resources. So they um, actually said, okay, let's have a meeting. We are very busy people. We are trying to get the Chairman House Committee on Health to sit there in one place for like five days. It's not easy. They got all key stakeholders. The SA budget was there. The chairman, House Committee on Health was there. I was there. The permanent secretary, everybody that was supposed to be there was there. Even the state planning commission had a representative. Minister of Finance had a representative. So it was packed. So it's, it made my advocacy very easy because following that meeting, we're all on the same page. Because we've been having stakeholder engagements, the Obong of Calabar is one of the eight recognized traditional rulers in Nigeria because he had seen what we had been doing. And that chieftaincy title doesn't come easy. You have to have earned it, and HFG actually earned it. It's something that if um, the head of HFG in Nigeria, Gafa, if he says, ah, Commissioner, please, I need to see the governor. We need to go ahead in society, so this is dragging to. I just said the governor, HFG wants to meet, and it's that easy. Because he has a relationship with HFG, USAID already, and he has seen the support, the tremendous support that HFG is giving to the health insurance scheme in the state. The working together, it was very easy to get that bill passed and to get it signed into law. There's something the governor did that's very special. No other governor has done that. When he signed the bill into law, he launched the bill. He launched it in a, well, the day of the signing was a very big event where all the political stakeholders, all religious leaders were there. And he launched it by 
actually saying, let us have a pool for this fund. Everybody should contribute. So people donated a lot of money. So from the beginning, we want to have it as a culture of the people to know that they need to pay for it to be sustained. Before now, we have a, we've had a stint with free medical care. So many times that is a sole responsibility of government to fund health insurance. So that's why we are trying to do a lot of awareness to tell people that they need to contribute this little money so that they also have a sense of ownership. Because we are going to also take out the vulnerable group, uh, the pregnant women, the children, the elderly, the handicapped. In Africa, we already have a culture of taking care of our brothers, leaning on your brother. So it's about the rich paying for the poor, the healthy paying for the sick, and all that, the very young or the young paying for the old. We try to tie, we try to talk to their hearts, not just their brain, you know, and tell them that, see, this is about your brother. It's about being your brother's keeper. All right, we did it. We got through all three questions. Congratulations, listeners. So question one was, what is it? DRM is a process for finding resources, that is money from within a country to address healthcare needs. It's about equity, about limiting out-of-pocket payments, which are especially hard on poor and vulnerable people, and also about improving the efficiency with which services are delivered in a country so that existing resources go farther in keeping people healthy. So question two, why does it matter and why are we talking about it now? DRM matters because donor plans are changing and are uncertain. DRM matters because donor plans are changing and they're uncertain, and because there's a greater demand and also expectation for health services from people within countries. We saw that in things like the sustainable development goals on kind of a global level, in plans with these low and middle income countries themselves, and in improvements in technology that mean people know that we can better address diseases and they expect it and demand it. And finally, question three, how do we do it and what are the lessons learned from the HFG project? So of course, DRM involves the analytical work of looking closely at health systems in a country. But perhaps more importantly, it's about developing relationships with various ministries and stakeholders and people, and communicating a clear, compelling message about the need for DRM and the benefits it can bring. And there's a key political element here. Understanding the political economy and political landscape in a country is critical to DRM being effective in the long term. So don't shy away from getting political, even if it seems challenging, because you have to. Here in the U.S., we've lived through 10 or more years of complex debate about healthcare, and the importance of politics and understanding a complex political environment is very clear here. And of course, other countries have complex political environments, too. One last thank you for listening to this episode, and I really hope it was interesting and useful for you. Thanks to everyone who was on this episode and everyone on the HFG project, and a special thanks to Jen Leopold. Also, thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for our theme music and to Flocabulary. That's the company that put together the rap song about the sustainable development goals for the UN. And finally, a thanks to USAID for funding the HFG project, which is led by Apt Associates. We also have one request. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. You can also find us on Stitcher or any of the other podcast apps that are out there that you prefer. We're going to close out this episode with just a few more lines from Flocabulary's wonderful hip-hop song on the Sustainable Development Goals. Great, thanks, Gabby. This was fun. Yes, it actually was. This is really fun. We could put it in a podcast (laughs) and let other people learn. The United Nations is an organization with goals of peace and sustainable development around the world. 
Their mission is huge, but we're breaking it down in two minutes. 17 sustainable development goals. Let's get to them, cause the more you know. Look, in some corners of the world today, people are living on a dollar a day. Hey, that's not how it ought to be. So go one, eliminate poverty, and go two, root out hunger across the globe. There's 800 million people hungry if you wanna know. Number three is health and well-being and getting people the health care that they need in learning in school are the harder go for education opens up minds and doors goal number five is empower girls and women so they can have the same rights that men are given number six people need water that's clean poor sanitation can't spread disease carbon free energy is goal number seven and how to achieve it is the question that's pressing but if we put our minds together and work hard we can find a solution i'm guessing 17 sustainable development goals to improve life all around the globe protecting human health and the environment whatever bad we make we gon' have to lie in it 17 sustainable development goals to improve life all around the globe protecting human health and the environment whatever bad we make